0: Please take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans. In the New Testament, we're going to look at a section of chapter 13 in the book of Romans. I'm going to begin with verse 8 and read the first clause of verse 11. These verses will serve as the basis for the morning message. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whatever version you have with you. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, that is, to love our neighbor, knowing the time. If you're an American who is average in your level of debt, and I know you're all above average today, so this part won't apply to you. You owe $38,000 in debt, including your home mortgage. College graduates in 2017 who graduated from public universities had, listen, a $30,000 debt per student. That was the average of the graduates. Some graduated with no debt. As I pursued this a little further, I was wondering about medical students. We have a lot of medical students who go to our church and medical doctors in our church. And in 2016, the average debt of graduates from medical school in the United States of America was $190,000. Pay a high price to become a doctor, not just in the effort that is expended, but also in the cash which is spent. Now some of these debts are beyond the capacity of people who incur them. But the reality is, if we were to stop and live according to what God says about debt, and the scripture tells us, what does it say? Owe nothing to anyone except to love. In other words, don't go in debt. Well, I was listening to a message over 40 years ago, and sometimes things stick in your mind, I'm sure, you're like me in that, that never leave them. I was listening to a message that a man who was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Austin, Texas at the time, his name was Carlisle Marnie, and he was preaching on the Lord's Prayer. He came to the part of the Lord's Prayer which says, Give us this day our daily bread. And his interpretation of that, as he put it into his own words, he says, when I pray this to the Lord, really what I'm saying is, Lord, I need my wanter fixed. Because bread is necessity. We have so many things that we accumulate that are not necessary. More than one person here, probably, has something which you have bought maybe months ago, in some cases years ago, and when you're fumbling through your drawer or going through your closet or looking in your toolbox or going to your shed or garage, you find something you said, I had completely forgotten about that. My question is, did you need it to begin with? If you haven't used it, the answer is obvious, you didn't. Needed, or you just have a poor memory and went out and bought one that would suffice in that situation. The Bible says in more than one place, be content with what you have. The need to get more and more is a statement about our not really being content in each and every situation, as the Apostle Paul described himself. What was the secret of his contentment? He said, I've learned the secret Of being content in each and every situation. What was the secret? Well, if you read what comes before that, there's a simple sentence translated by four English words, which was Paul's secret. And which can be your secret and mine also. The Lord is near. Jesus is with us if we know Him. And what has Jesus promised us? If we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then all these other things will be added to us. What are those things that will be added to us? Our clothing will be provided, and I think we could also include in that shelter. Our food will be provided. The necessities of life will be provided. And I would suggest to you, when we know the Lord and we respond properly to His entrusting a certain level of wealth to us, then He lets us have things that really aren't necessities. They're things that are luxuries, but as His children, He allows us to enjoy such things. The Bible says in the book of 1 Timothy, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So we can enjoy those things without a sense of guilt, but not be owned by those things not spend a lot of time worrying about those things, at the same time having a sense of responsibility in the area of being good stewards. Have you ever had a debt and it weighed heavily upon you? Any here, anyone here besides me who's had such a situation? And then the debt was erased. It's awesome, isn't it, to have that debt lifted once you have had that debt Hanging over your head. It's awesome. I can remember one time. I can remember two times. I can remember many times when I was needing help. And I cried out to God on one occasion. And He gave me $10,000. Now this was about 30 years ago. That's a lot of money today. But I had no other way to get the money. And as far as I know, I had not lived above my means. I was just barely making it. And as far as I know, I was committed to give, according to what God says, at least 10% of the income He had entrusted me. And I wanted to be a good steward of that. And I was before the Lord. I just said, Lord, please, I need help. I was a pastor. I was working my head off. Probably sixty hours a week, so I couldn't work at anything else, and lo and behold the Lord gave me out of the blue God put it on the heart of somebody else to give it to me. it was amazing it wasn't my mother, it wasn't my daddy, no relative, somebody who is a relative in Christ did another occasion after that, I was in debt now I must confess this time I was Largely guilty for being in debt. And I won't go into the reasons for that, but I had a debt. I was diligently paying it down, paying it down, paying it down. I was putting every spare cent I got when I was paid or got money for things I had not expected to be paid for. I was putting every single penny after I had given my tithe into the reduction of that debt. And then all of a sudden, someone cleared the debt for me. Unbelievable. So, when each of those things occurred, it was like a huge weight lifted off of me. And I have never gotten into that kind of debt that I was largely responsible for since then. That's been probably 15 or 20 years ago now. This passage of Scripture talks about a different kind of debt when it says owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. The debt to love one another is to be paid daily. Listen carefully. But is a debt which is never fully paid. Never. And by the way, this debt of my being responsible and your being responsible to love each other is not a burden, really. It is an actual blessing. Blessing to the one who might be loved by Christ through us, but also a blessing to us. What I've discovered is love begets love. It begets love in other people, and there's a certain reciprocity which occurs when we love the person. We're not loving the person so she or he will love us back. This is unconditional love that is spoken of here. Having said that, let's look at some aspects of this love. The explanation of this love is in order. John Stott has described it this way, the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. Sacrifice is huge, that's a big concept, but undeserving is also big because we are not to be discriminatory in the distribution of this love. There's never a moment when we are told to withhold love from others. Never a moment. I would dare you to find that in Scripture where it says, don't love anybody. It's not there in Scripture. It's the uniform message of the Word of God. The essence of love is that it gives where nothing is due. Do you remember the parable Jesus teaches in Luke 14? He talks about a man who was giving a banquet. And He says, go out into the highways and byways and gather people, invite them to this banquet. But when you invite them, don't invite people who are first and foremost your friends. Are people that you can gain something from in terms of future favors if they do come. But go and invite people who have nowhere to go to eat. Reach out to people who you would never think about inviting to a party that you're throwing for your closest associates. People, in effect, this is what Jesus said, people who can't give you anything in return. And... That's the kind of love that is spoken of in Scripture. It looks for what it can give rather than what it can get from other people. Have you had this experience? I must confess, a time or two or ten I've had this experience. It's like three days before Christmas, and I open my mailbox, and there's a Christmas card. And I look at it and says, oh my goodness, I forgot to write her or him a Christmas card. And I say, I've got two more days. Mail will be delivered. Maybe two more days, especially if it's in El Paso. It could get there. So I run in and start pulling out the cards and writing them. Because I don't want to be embarrassed. You know, that's the tit-for-tat relationship that we have with a lot of people. Or if they come on Christmas Eve, you think, oh my goodness, it's too late. So when you're... Finished with reading the card, you'll start your list for Christmas cards the next year and maybe even send a Happy New Year card the day after Christmas. So if to say, I really didn't forget you. I'm just sending New Year cards this year instead of Christmas cards, right? Well, we look, if we love the way the Lord says we're to love, we look not for what we can get. We do it simply because we've been called to be givers as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greatest gift which we can give is that of love. Now, in this passage of Scripture, if you'll look again at verse 8, Owe nothing, and this is emphasized by the tense of the verb, keep on owing nothing to anyone except to love one another, to keep on loving one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then the Scripture goes on to say, For you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what's interesting. We know the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus uses it to illustrate for... A young scribe, who probably would be the equivalent of a T.H.D. or Ph.D. in Scripture, came to him and asked him, What is the greatest commandment? you remember how Jesus responded? In a way that really pleased this man, in a way, because he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Love your neighbor as yourself. The word for neighbor is the word that is used most often, almost always in the New Testament for neighbor. It's the word pleon in the original language of the New Testament. That's the way it sounds. Interestingly, in this particular passage of Scripture, when Paul talks about, Loving your neighbor as yourself. The word pleon doesn't occur. Listen carefully. This is literally what the text says. You shall love the other as yourself. Now, what's that all about? There are two words in the New Testament which are translated by our English term, another. One means another of the same kind. Alas is that word. The other is Heteros, you hear a series of words in our language, it's like a prefix to a lot of words, isn't it? Heteros, another of a different kind. So why do you suppose the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this this way? Because Paul was being led by the Spirit to teach us that we're to love people, not just to our brothers and sisters in Christ but people who are different than we, people who are not in the family of God. We have a responsibility to them, and that's exactly what Jesus went on to teach in the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? That's exactly what he taught. People who are not of us, people who are not like us. So, the extent of this love, that's what we're looking at now, Having gotten an explanation of it, the extent of this love is to all mankind. Have you ever stopped to think, maybe you haven't, that people outside the body of Christ judge us who follow Jesus and are declaring our faith, talking about Jesus, by the way we pay our debts? Have you ever thought about that? When I first became a pastor, I was wet behind the ears, and I was talking to a banker, and he was a good man. He was a Christian man. And he said, Mike, I want to tell you something. I was talking to him about money and so forth, and he said, you know, in our profession, we loan a lot of money, and there's... An unwritten saying among bankers is that there are two kinds of people you don't loan money to. Preachers and painters. And I, I thought, I, I, I understand maybe a little bit about painters, but why not preachers? And he said, don't you get it, son? Preachers don't pay their bills. I thought, whoa. God helped me never to fail to pay anything that I owe on time so as not to besmirch your name. And I pray that for you today, too. People outside the Bible, and they're hypocritical at doing it because they do the same thing, but they hold us to a higher standard because we have associated ourselves with the highest standard, God in the person of Jesus Christ and His Word. So we need to be careful about that. When my wife and I were in seminary, after we had lived in an apartment for a while, we got what was a great deal. It was on 3920 Ryan Street, north of Seminary Hill in Fort Worth, Texas. It was between the seminary and the campus of Texas Christian University. It was a little two-bedroom frame house, but it was a house. And that was pretty cool for us. We had never had a standalone place where we called home. And the rent was awesome. $92.50 a month. I don't know where the 50 cents came from. Ninety two fifty a month. It fit our budget beautifully. We had next door neighbors and it was our heart to want to minister to them. They were old enough to be our parents. They had one child who was born to them later in life. He was a teenager. His name was Jet. This couple was not a Christian couple, but they were more generous than anybody in our neighborhood. They gave and gave and gave. They had a greenhouse attached to their home next to ours, and it was a place people came and bought plants and so forth. And as we got to know them, I was asking the Lord, Lord, help me to witness to this family, share the gospel. And so I began to bring up the subject of the Lord. And I got an immediate bite, not literally, but it was like I was bitten by a wounded animal when the lady of the house told about a couple who lived two doors down who were also seminary students. And those seminary students had come and spilled their woes to her and her husband. It had to do with money. And they had borrowed money and never bothered to begin to pay it back. So when we are poor stewards of the money that God entrusts to us, in the first place, sometimes getting things we really don't need, this couple needed what they got, I would imagine. But sometimes just paying back a little bit, if you're in that situation where you think, I've gotten such a big debt... And my giving a small percentage of that means nothing. It won't bother that person. They've got a lot of money or she has a lot of money. If they have a lot of money that they're not really using anyway. That, well, first of all, we don't know that. And second of all, having been on that side of the equation where I have loaned money to someone and they never bothered to try to pay any of it back. I'm thinking of two people immediately. And what the Lord had to teach me was, first of all, don't ever loan any money again. That's what he said. But give money when I tell you to give it to somebody and be done with it. And so that's what I did with those two individuals. They're both males, both heads of household, both terrible money managers, neither of whom is in the church. It ruins relationships. Who are These were members of the church, by the way. It ruins relationships, does it? I would welcome those men to talk with them, to pray with them, to share with them to this day. They are, I believe, true brothers in Christ. So, understand what it does to the gospel. It damages the gospel's being heard. Unpaid debt is a hindrance to hearing the gospel on the part of people who are unbelievers. We're to be courteous and kind to people, patient with people. I've noticed my impatience shows up at one intersection, especially on the west side. And, by the way, let me tell you this. I try the patience of more people than anybody on the west side. Let me start with that. The reason I know that is because people honk their horns a lot at me when I'm driving. <laughs> Unbelievable. And I think they probably have a reason for that. They're probably right. But one intersection for sure is, is I'm going west on Mesa and I'm passing Rimcon, and I'm headed toward the entryway to the interstate to go north, there's always this line of traffic. And as recently as two days ago, I'm going there and I'm on a shoestring of time and all of a sudden this person comes barreling down on my left and there was barely enough room for a car to get in between me and the one in front of me and darts in there. I'm thinking, man. What is going on? You ever do anything like that? Well, this kind of love extends to jerks like that too, okay? It does. It does. We're to love everyone. And when we really know the Lord, let me be very frank. When we really know the Lord, we want to be courteous to people. Not to win friends and influence people, except maybe influence them to the Lord. But we want to be loving toward people. There's a movie coming out. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I saw a docudrama on this man, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Maybe you saw it sometime in the last year. It's awesome. But Tom Hanks is starring as Mr. Rogers. He was was kinda creepy sometimes when I would look at it. But he's had a great he's had a great influence on people. He loved the Lord. Did you know that? He was a graduate of seminary. That doesn't make you a Christian for sure. But he loved the Lord. He cared for people. He wanted to be their neighbor. He wasn't he doesn't say, I want you to be my neighbor. He does in the second part, Won't You Be My Neighbor? But primarily, He's taking initiative in that. We need to be men and women who are kind to other people. And what the Scripture says here, this is amazing, loving our neighbors, the others, as ourselves, people who are different than we, outside the body of Christ, fulfills the whole law. What does that mean? It does no harm. Love does no harm to people. It only does that which is good to people. So, what does love do? Instead of murdering people, what does it do? It builds people up. It encourages people. Do you know that we murder people according to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22? He says, if we call another Empty-headed, raka is the word, you idiot, basically. When we call people that, we are guilty before the Supreme Court, which was the court which people in Israel, when they were called to give an answer for something they did, it was a court that only rendered capital punishment sentences. We are guilty. We murder people with our words. If we love people, we won't use words to slay them. We will use words to build them up. In the area of adultery, I think of how when we commit adultery, we rob people, don't we? Murder, we rob them of their lives. Adultery, we rob them of their homes when we commit adultery. Think about Joseph, this young man in his late teens, the wife of his master, Potiphar kept enticing him to come to bed, to come to bed, to come to bed. He said, Miss, he said, your husband has deprived me of nothing but you. And how can I do such a thing, and listen to what he said, and sin against the Lord? Stealing. He says, he shall not steal. What do we do? We rob people of their property, and we do that in different ways. We rob people at work when we do other things during time that we are supposed to be serving our employer. We do things that were dedic- that, with time that was dedicated to do the work. We need to be the best workers. On the job, as believers in Jesus Christ. I already said, if we don't pay back a debt, we're stealing, aren't we? Of course we are. Coveting, what does that simply mean? Wanting something which belongs to other people. So we steal things that belong to other people too. Well, let's move forward and look at the third Section of what I'm sharing with you today, teaching the expressions of this love in practical terms. Let me give you just a few. Are you familiar with the fact that the New Testament is filled with one another commands? Are you aware of that? Let's look at some of those commands. The first that we're going to look at is serve one another in love. This is in the book of Galatians chapter 5. Serve one another in love. Ray Steadman tells a story about a young man who was raised in a Christian home. Every night, he had been taught from his preschool years before going to bed to say his prayers. And at some point, that became more than a ritual for this boy. It became real in terms of his relationship to God through Christ. And every night at home, he would get on his knees, even... The last night, and that probably would be the night that you'd be most likely to do it as a teenager, get on your knees and pray to the Lord before he was shipped out. He continued that practice when he got to boot camp. And the people in his unit mocked him, made fun of him. One day after a long day's march, one of the ringleaders of the mockery took off one of his boots and threw. Threw it at the young man as he was kneeling beside his bed praying. Hit him in the side of the head. Then the others followed this co-GI because he was an influential person. And they started pelting him one after the other with their boots. The young man stopped and he lined all their boots which were thrown at him aside his cot and continued and finished his prayer when they were through with their abusing him. Things calmed down. Everyone was so weary, they went to sleep. The next morning, when Reveille was played, and the GIs began to rise from their cots, lo and behold, all those boots of all those antagonists toward this young man, had been polished to a spit shine. They had been muddy when they had hit the side of this boy's head and his body. And the result of that was the one who was the ringleader, he was immediately convicted of his behavior. He actually began to show some remorse in the form of tears himself. And that ringleader who was mean to this Christian young man because this young man served him in love. You talk about love. That's incredible, isn't it? And that ringleader gave his life to the Lord as a result of that. The Scripture says that we are to forgive one another. We read that from Ephesians chapter 4. That section begins with verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. Do not grieve God. Do you know that we can actually grieve God? That's what the Scripture teaches. Not just here, in the Old Testament it teaches the same. We can grieve God. And one of the ways we grieve God is in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And earlier it says, don't be resentful, don't be bitter, don't be angry, which means erupt in anger. Don't seethe with anger by holding things against others. Be done with that. We're to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Some years ago, Tom Elleth who was the president of the International Mission Board, some of you might remember him, came here on our missions weekend and shared the weekend with us. In one of his books, he tells a story with the permission of his father, who is the central figure in this particular story. His father, J.T. Eleph, was a man who was used by the Lord. In lots of ways. In fact, he influenced my mentor, Herb Hodges. He told Herb one time, as we, and Herb told it to me years later, he said, J.T. Elliff said one time to me and a group of young pastors, there's a fine line between spirituality and sexuality. And by that, I think you know what he meant. Be careful, men and women, that you don't start off maybe on the right wrong wrong foot. You don't try to sort of woo someone of the opposite sex to whom you're not married to yourself through being spiritual. But your spirituality is appealing to somebody else who wants to be around someone who's spiritual. And you can quickly find yourself in an illicit liaison when that's the case. You have to be careful about that. Well, J.T. Elliff didn't heed his own advice. His son, Tom, tells the story. He has three sons who are living. J.T. himself is deceased. Tom used mightily of God. Jim and Bill also used mightily of God. Three wonderful men of God who've been used by God. He had his David moment, J.T. did. And he fell in the trap of sexual immorality with his secretary and, of course... That was devastating to so many, not the least of whom was J.T. Elliff's wife, the mother of Tom Elliff. J.T. got divorced. He divorced his wife, this other woman. And the mother and his wife, the mother of their children, his wife, lived until she died as a single person. She suffered a stroke that eventually took her life. She was on life support, in a coma. Tom and Bill and Jim and their sister would come and just tell their mother. They'd read the Bible and sing hymns around her bed, even though she was apparently unresponsive. And they would tell her all the things that God had taught them through her. And they had an idea, the boys did. They said, we need to get Dad here. We need to get Dad here so he can ask mother to forgive him before she dies. J.T. in his heart had said, Lord, I'm so sorry. But he didn't know how to approach his wife whom he had wounded so deeply. He went at the invite of his sons and daughter. And he came there and he called her name and he touched her hand. And he said, oh, oh, please forgive me. He was weeping because of what he had done. And then all of a sudden, she began to make noises. Unintelligible noises, but noises nonetheless, which were indicative, they were sure, of the fact that she was trying to let him know, I do forgive you. Understand this that when we forgive others, it does something awesome for the forgiven, especially if they know the Lord. Because they're burdened with that memory of how they violated their trust, in this case, to a wife and to children and to grandchildren, but also, and more importantly, to the Lord. There's a story which is told by Peter Marshall, who himself was a great preacher of the gospel, Presbyterian, during World War II era. He tells the story of a young man who had a roommate. They were college students, the young man was a Christian. The young man whom was his roommate, they had met in college, and he really didn't know much about him. He knew he was primarily a loner. One afternoon, he came in from studying, and he sat down to relax a little bit. And all of a sudden, this young man came from behind him and began to stab him in the back. He stabbed him several times, and then once he had stabbed him several times, the man was bleeding quite a bit, the young man, he called for help, the one who had assaulted him. He was disturbed terribly, mentally disturbed, if not demonized. And the police came, and the people to take the wounded man to get care came. And as this man lay, this Christian young man lay still conscious on the edge of death, this man who had done this crime said to him, Would you forgive me? And the man said, from a prone position, he said, I do forgive you. When the man was checked in at the ER, no hope, basically, is what he was given. He had lost too much blood. The damage to his organs was too great. Surgery seemed impossible in some areas that were critical. For weeks he lay in that condition, and finally he began to get better. Part of that was in a coma. And when he came back to reality and began to talk to the doctors, the doctor said, one of the doctors said, we as a medical team have observed you. We gave you no chance to live. But we saw something in you we have never seen in all our years of intensive care work. A peace on a human being that we had never seen. Where did that peace come from? From the Lord, right? But He had forgiven this man. He forgave him. He was sincere in forgiving him. It does something for the forgiver, doesn't it? It sets us free. If you are holding resentment to somebody, let go of it. Set yourself free. You're a slave to that person whom you will not forgive. Trust God to give you the power. Also, we show love not just by serving one another in love, forgiving one another, but bearing one another's burdens. I don't need to go too far into detail on this. Galatians 6 2 says, Keep on bearing one another's burdens. Every man and woman in this room probably has some burden you're trying to carry by yourself. But trust the Lord as one who can be a burden bearer. Be on the lookout. Love others. And in Hebrews 10.24, the Bible says, Let us consider how we may stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Consider is the word logikon, from which the word logic is derived. We need to consider ways that we can help each other love. Have you ever thought about that? That's a command in Scripture. It's to be a preoccupation for us to help people love. The last thing as we finish up is, I love this word, I know you do too, the exigency of this love. That means the urgency of this love. And we see this spelled out for us in verse 11. And this do, in other words, love our neighbor as ourselves, knowing the time. We've been looking for the last four weeks before this week about the second coming of Christ to be prepared like the five virgins who had oil extra For their lamps to be ready for the wedding party that they were part of. To make the most of every opportunity, like the men who got five talents and two talents, and when their master returned, wow, they were ready. They understood the times, didn't they? We, too, must understand the time. The word time is not the word that we usually think of when we think of time. We think of time in linear terms event after it, chronological terms. This word is a unique New Testament word, kairos. It's a time filled with unusual God-given opportunity to serve the Lord and glorify the Lord. In Galatians 1.4, as Paul introduces what possibly is his first epistle, he says about Jesus who died for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. The word translated age is the word kairos. This present evil time. We live in evil times, do we not? I don't have to belabor that. I know you know that. This time is a time that is limited for us. I read about in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian in North Carolina. About a beauty queen, a young lady... College student. And this college student went out in an effort, got in her car, went out in an effort to escape, and in the blinding rain and wind and all the debris blowing around, she had a wreck and was killed. A beautiful young lady in her 20s. Even people who are young can't be sure of another day. And we who are older, we know there's a lot less. Sand in the hourglass than there has been. Correct? We try to not think about that, but we should be living so as to be ready for that event. The Bible says our time is short. This is what this is really saying. When it says, knowing the time, our time is short. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, no man knows his own time, referring to the time of his death. It's appointed unto man once to die. So we must die, the Scripture says in 2 Samuel. Like water spilled on the ground, all of us must die. There's coming a time. So that shouldn't frighten us. What it should do is motivate us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And quit thinking about yourself. Love doesn't think about itself. Love is not self-conscious. It's conscious of others. We read in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, what were His apostles eager to know? Is this the time that the kingdom of God is going to come on earth? That was the prevailing thought. And believe me, that time is coming. It's coming. We know it's much closer than it was when these apostles asked the question of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time. The word is kairos. We don't know the time. But then he goes on to say, you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. Do you know what we are to do with loving, as the Scripture says, love your, the other, not your neighbor, but the other of you. The one who's different. That would be people that don't know Christ. Do you know, we're to be involved in sharing Christ with them. This is our mission. Anything else is an inferior mission that we can do under the umbrella of being a Christian as compared to sharing the Gospel. That's our calling The last thing which Jesus said before ascending into heaven is, As you go, make disciples of all nations. We are in this process. In a moment, I'm going to ask a young lady, Nicole Roulet, to come to close our service out. She's going to give her testimony about how someone cared about her and reached out to her, took the risk, and the result we'll hear from her. In just a moment. Paul says, The time of my departure has come. There was no sadness in it. For he said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what it means to be a Christian. To put Jesus first. And let him influence all of your thinking. Tap into the mind of Christ and want to know more about His mind so you can think appropriately and act appropriately and speak appropriately so that you will not waste your life. Many of you know the name Jonathan Edwards. Immediately what comes to your mind is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Before he was 20, he wrote this as a result, resolution. I resolve never to lose one moment of time but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Here's what he said. If you're taking notes, you may want to jot these things down. He said to his hearers, consider that you are accountable to God for your time. Your time is not yours, really, if you understand who you are and who God is. Your time is His time. Realize that we will stand before the Lord. We looked at this last week to give an account of our lives. Secondly, consider how much time you've already lost. Now, this could be a real downer, but it's something that would be helpful so you don't repeat history, your personal history. The Bible says, but one thing I do... Paul says, forgetting what's behind. I cannot do what happened yesterday again. The time I wasted yesterday, I can never recover. But I can certainly be on the alert for today. To be ready for today. To serve the Lord with gladness by serving others. Ministering to them. Forgiving others. Bearing one another's burdens. Finding a way to stimulate others to love and good deeds. And on and on it goes. To be... That kind of person. And the flip side of evaluating what's already been lost is to improve the present time without delay. We have no guarantee of another breath that we might take. Here's a quotation I will close with. We can never say, I've done all the loving I need to do. Can you say that? I know there are people in this room who have been wounded deeply by people whom they have sought to love. Well, my friend, my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, love those people by the grace of God. You don't have it in you, nor do I. But we trust Jesus to help us. In the book, of Romans 5.5, 5, this last biblical quotation, says, The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you know Jesus? Well, if you do, you know the Holy Spirit. He lives in you and He equips us to fulfill this never-ending debt of love. Amen? Nicole, if you'll come. Nicole Roulet is... Many of you know her if you come in our church office or make calls. She's one of our faithful workers, and she certainly uses her time wisely. I can tell you her office is right outside of mine,
1: so thank you. Thank you. Um, so the one um, who invested in me and really poured into my life is very near and dear to Coronado Baptist. Her name is Victoria Leotto now. Back then she was Victoria Lozano. Um, I met her through Youth for Christ at Coronado High School. Um, I wanted to know more about Jesus and how to pursue him. So she entered into a discipleship relationship with me my freshman year. And um, we had a lot of different talks. We talked, we went through a little orange book that I'm sure a lot of you know called Growing in Christ. Um, And it was a really sweet relationship. But at the point that I, at the point that I was in my life i wasn't ready to let go of a lot of things, and so I used school and extracurricular activities as an excuse to not meet with her anymore and I know that she felt a little discouraged by that later, she told me but um, but she kept praying for me even after we stopped meeting and I thank God that she did because um, in my junior and senior year i Hung out with a crowd that was very worldly, seeking worldly things, and I, too, was seeking worldly things. I was seeking validation from people and places that were not things of life. (laughs) The things I was holding on to all were fading and led to death. And um, I found myself in trouble with the law, and it was one of the lowest points of my life. And when I was there, I I remembered the talks that I had with Victoria during our discipleship meetings about assurance of forgiveness, assurance of salvation, and assurance of answered prayer. So I prayed, and I accepted Jesus into my life for the very first time, and I let go of all those things and clung on to life. (laughs) And I, um, I came to Victoria shortly after and told her about how everything had happened, and how God had used her to really keep me rooted in his word and remind me of his promises. And um, I remember her saying that it was encouraging for her to hear about how the relationship had brought fruit. And so if you're discipling anyone and you're feeling discouraged or you feel like it's not really getting through to them, keep praying for them, keep ministering to them, keep loving them, because God in his perfect and faithful timing We'll bring them to his kingdom. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Amen. And so it's not too late to ask God to give you one whom you can befriend in the name of Jesus. And five weeks from today, it's hard to believe, we're going to be having our Who's Your One weekend. And Dr. Jim Shaddix, who's Professor of Preaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, will be our guest preacher the weekend. Jim graduated from Clint High School, and some of you know the name David Platt. Maybe you've read some of his works in his first book, Radical. He makes reference to the fact that it was Jim Shaddix who discipled David Platt. And there's good fruit there, obviously. Jim and I have been friends for, I call him Jimmy, because I knew him when he was really nothing more than a boy when he was in Clint. And Jimmy had worked with me when he was pastoring in Arlington, I was too, and did an evangelistic meeting and did a great job. So pray for Jimmy. Pray for your one. And if you don't have one, ask God to give you one. And then pray for all of us. Let me close in saying, Lord, please give us someone whom we can love into the kingdom of God. By sharing the good news in the way in which we treat them, but also in the gospel. That you died for our sins, Jesus, according to the scriptures. You were buried and you were raised again on the third day. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you.